You're about to listen to an Audible original. Immersive audio entertainment like you've never heard before. Discover comedies from some of your favorite stars. Plus more genres you love. All inside the Audible app. But for now, enjoy the ride. The following contains language that some may find offensive. I was in Chicago and I heard on television that all the lights was out in New York and I, I fell on my knees and I prayed. I said, please, God, let Governor Wallace be in New York tonight. <laughs> Trapped on an elevator with 17 black Muslims. He was called the Jackie Robinson of stand-up comedy. As much as Motown kind of set it to music, he gave it heart. He gave it tone and texture. He gave it a punchline. The first black comedian to break the color line in the American nightclub scene. He went to bed funny. So funny his way was a lifestyle. What made him brilliant and what also made him so important is Dick Gregory was going to say what he was going to say. He made incredible sacrifices in terms of career in order to use his voice for the causes that he believed in. He walked the walk and talked the walk. He was fearless. A comic-turned-activist who even ran for president. That's what separated him from his contemporaries at that time. Because he, he wasn't fearful of anything. He was not afraid to voice his opinion. A best-selling author and father to 11 children. I think my father had a way of telling the truth in a way that would shock the hell out of you and then make you want to know more. A captivating storyteller who fearlessly took on the establishment. Dick Gregory was funny because he took large, big, heavy ideas and synthesized them down to a modern, current circumstance that we could all understand. A national celebrity who used his platform to bolster the civil rights movement. Dick Gregory did not pull any punches. He wanted white folks to know that you are mistreating black folks, and it ain't cool. He's worked harder for the rights of black folks and young folks than any other entertainer in America. Not only did Dick Gregory think all these things had to be said, he knew that he could sell. He knew that he had the lexicon. He knew that he had the gravitas. But I had so much fun in London. I would go to the airport every day and stand right by the ramp where the planes come in from Rhodesia and scare those people to death. I would tell them, I'm the first of four million African refugees. <laughs> there was no blueprint for somebody to be as gifted as he was in the world of entertainment and be just as equally as committed to the freedom and justice, social justice movement. A man who paved the way and influenced the biggest black comedians of our time. You can hear so many echoes of Dick Gregory's social political commentary in the comedy of Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. In this episode, we take a dive into the life of a true Renaissance man who used his comedy not just to make the world laugh, but to make it a better place. I think he was just born that way. And so I think anything he was going to do he was going to do it his way. You know, he was built like that. I'm J.B. Smoove, and this is Funny My Way, Dick Gregory. On October 12, 1932, Richard Claxton Gregory is born in St. Louis, Missouri. One of six children of an absent father and a struggling but resilient mother. The Great Depression is in full swing and Americans are suffering. But few have it worse than the Gregory's. Dick Gregory's son, Christian. The Gregory's were the poorest of the poor in their tiny little, we would, by today's standard, we would call it a shack on North Taylor Street. My dad made a promise to his mother that he would get all of the Gregory's far away from North Taylor Street. My father struggled in a way most of us today really can't fathom. It was his mother, Lucille Gregory, using words to sustain them when there was no food. Until you've been sustained by words, most of us can't even fathom that. 
for your body nutritionally to be able to be sustained and hunger pains go away from words. At a young age, you understand the power that words are not just simply words. And Gregory learns those words have power. I would say probably single digits, eight, nine years old, he started to realize that he had a knack because he would make adults laugh by the things that he would say. But words can't feed hungry children, and Dick and his siblings suffer from malnourishment. He and his brother were so thin, they were sent to a special school for kids that had health issues. Ed Schmidt is an academic historian currently working on a biography on Dick Gregory. He didn't really feel like he had much going for him at all, and he got picked on a lot. And I think he just discovered one day that he had this gift of being able to kind of zing people and set them back on their heels. Dick's daughter, Ayana, says her father used to keep the bullies at bay by playing the dozens. (laughs) Playing the dozens is ultimately talking bad about somebody, but doing it in a way that everybody understands that it's a joke. Playing the dozens for sure in the Black community was a way for us to be able to laugh at our pain, the tragedy of, you know, oftentimes what it meant to be Black in America and to be so disrespected, uh, unprotected, to be in, to live in danger, to be uh, considered, you know, less than human on so many levels. Actor, comedian, and political commentator D.L. Hughley says he too grew up with everyone around him playing the dozens. <laughs> there were dudes who were great athletes, and there were dudes who were cunning, and there were dudes who would just talk shit for a living. And that's what we used to do. We called it playing the dozens. It's what I have known how to do my whole life. It's one thing that I didn't have to be classically trained. I mean, didn't have to understand the rhythm of in terms of comedy. And Dick Gregory was like that. Dealing with bullies helps build Gregory's comedic chops and gives him a deep sense of compassion. He's really convinced, that, and I am too, that that's where he really developed this feeling for others who are outsiders and underdogs, and he became a protector. He may have been poor, sickly, and a target for bullies, but Dick was never short on confidence. My father knew from a young age that he was special. His mother told him he was special. There were other elders in the community that told his mother that he was special and that told him. Dick is working on safety patrol at his school and one day a neighborhood elder walks up to him. He tells him something that will prove to be prophetic. You are going to be one of the most powerful forces on the planet. But the power that you have is not going to have to come from force. You were born with it. The city of St. Louis may be segregated, but that brings the Black community closer together. And Dick benefits from that support. He attended Sumner High School, and because of segregation, the Black PhD educators who could not find work elsewhere were working in Black high schools like Sumner. So most of Dad's teachers were PhDs. And so while it was an effect of racism, it ended up being a blessing because the Black community had all these powerhouses around them that were able to just pour back into their own communities. Despite his childhood illness, Gregory builds himself into an excellent athlete, earning him a track scholarship to nearby Southern Illinois University. In 1953, he's named Outstanding Student Athlete of the Year. He also tries his hand at playing music and telling jokes. He became a popular entertainer there, you know, Chamber of Commerce and women's club events. They would hire him to do shows. And and it wasn't just comedy. He, He really was as much a musician as a comedian at that point. And so he, you know, he kind of learned how to slide between music and humor and to, to entertain really a broad variety of audiences. But unlike most white students, being in college doesn't protect him from the draft. 
1954, he has to put his education on hold and join the Army. Like Flip Wilson and Paul Mooney, Gregory hones his craft in the service. When he joined the Army and entered talent contests and did his comedy, and I'm sure got a great response, I think, you know, was beginning to think, huh, this might be something that I could do, you know, on a different level, you know, not just for my friends and family. After two years, he heads back to college to pick up where he left off. But he can see the injustices of life more clearly now. He'd seen other Black students graduate, and they're getting the kinds of jobs that, you know, they could have gotten without having a college degree. And so he started to really question whether it was worth his time. Dick drops out of college and moves to Chicago to live with his older brother. One night, he hits the South Side and finds a spot called the Esquire Club. He convinces the manager to give him a shot as MC. Dick kills it and gets hired on the spot. I just think it was a natural evolution, you know, because he was naturally funny and because he was also a runner. You know, all these things require rhythm. There's a rhythm in running. There's a rhythm in comedy. And Gregory studies it like a science. What makes people laugh? What are people thinking about? That's an excerpt from Dick Gregory's autobiography, Nigger. Here, an actor playing Gregory talks about his intense study of the craft of comedy. Every day during the week, I'd be working out mine for that three-day meet, buying comedy records, buying joke books, watching television, listening to people, going to the library and digging into musty old books of humor, finding out where those comedy records got their material from. Hours and hours of television, the Ed Sullivan Show, the Jack Parr Show, every comedy show, even funny old movies, and then the news shows, the soap operas, the westerns, the series. At the Esquire Club, Dick meets Lillian Smith, a young woman who works as a secretary at the University of Chicago. Again, daughter Ayana. When he began to host at the Esquire Club, he was doing a combination of things. When my mom went to see him for the first time, he was, you know, he was kind of doing things in between. It wasn't like, oh, there's this comedian that's doing his comedy show and that's it. You know, he was he was singing, he was playing the bongos, and he was doing comedy. So. He was really uh, hosting the event. One Sunday after my afternoon show, a girl came out of the audience and asked me to come back to her table and give some autographs. She said she'd like me to meet her sister. I told her I'd be delighted. I walked over there and there was a young girl at the table, very bashful, very excited. She was twisting her napkin to death and giggling out of embarrassment. When I sat down, it was like God came over to her table. In 1959, Dick and Lillian get married and have their first child. Now with a family to support, Dick tries even harder to make it as a comedian. Dick Gregory was going to be the, the next big thing and really worked hard to get his name out there. He heads to the Roberts Show Club, a popular spot that caters to black crowds and bets the house on himself. So I brought the mountain to him. The Pan American Games were in Chicago that year, and I knew a lot of the athletes. I borrowed money and rented Robert's Show Club for one night to throw a party for the teams. Naturally, it was a one-man show. Afterwards, Herman Roberts came up to me and asked how much I wanted to be master of ceremonies at his club. I said $125 a week. He nearly slipped and said, is that all? Thick becomes one of the hottest acts in Chicago. He starts defining a new generation of black comedians, along with Nipsey Russell, Bill Cosby, and Godfrey Cambridge comics who defied the minstrel tradition of playing to negative stereotypes. You know, a lot of people ask me, say, Greg, how come you always talk about the South? Well, I was born and raised down South. I can talk about it if I want to. Matter of fact, I was born so far South, had my mother taken one step back, I'd have been a Mexican. <laughs> As a new decade dawns, Dick Gregory is catching fire. By 1960, he had already become established in Chicago as a you know, really um, well-known, talented comedian, but he hadn't yet found any considerable white audience. But Robert's Show Club was much bigger and was drawing white patrons, and it became known as kind of a black and tan club. 
white patrons would go and they knew that the music and the entertainment there was as good or better than anything that they were going to see anywhere in the city. In 1960, Dick's career gets a boost when the Republican National Convention comes to Chicago. At one point, Sammy Davis Jr. did a show at Robert's Show Club, and he was as big as an entertainer as there was anywhere at that point. And they saw Dick Gregory just in a brief role introducing Sammy Davis Jr. And that led to Hugh Hefner seeing him for the first time. In 1961, a Black comic had never performed at an ultra-exclusive venue like the Playboy Club. They were looking for emerging stars that they wouldn't have to pay very much. He took a bus, because that was the only way he could afford to get there. Got off at the wrong stop. Um, he had never been to the Playboy Club, and thank God he's a runner. So he, you know, sprinted and ran because he's thinking in his mind, oh, black folks are always late. This is his big moment. He didn't want to be that person. So he's running blocks, sliding and slipping on ice and snow, and probably fingers half froze. When Dick finally arrives, the manager tells him there's an unexpected audience in the club. So it might be best if he doesn't perform. There's a, a Southern frozen food convention. It couldn't be a more hostile audience. And they were there to have a good time. The understanding was that ain't no way you're going to go before a white Southern audience and do anything <laughs> and, and hope to keep your life. And I'm sure they didn't want the bad optic of, you know, racial language belittling, you know, their first black comedian. Dad was so determined. Dad was so clear that no wasn't an option, that he literally didn't hear them. A very pleasant good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And here in the famous Chicago Playboy Club, we present a man, a young man, a humorist, who faces the realities of our time with a smile on his mobile face. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Gregory. There's nothing free anymore. <laughs> well, you can't even hate free. Yeah. Don't you think for one minute all you have to do to join the Ku Klux Klan is hate me? Uh, That's money. $250 initiation fee and buy your own sheet. <laughs> for this delegation of white for southern frozen food, you know, convention to travel to Chicago, the Playboy Club, they're surrounded by bunnies and Hugh Hefner and all that glamour. For that moment to be hijacked by this Black man, how did that change their perception of Black people, more specifically Black men? One of the great insights that, that Dick Gregory figured out before this even was that the audience wants to be on your side, even that audience. So he felt, you know, like, I can do this. Ron Simmons produced a 2016 off-Broadway play about Gregory. His ability to be able to look into the mouth of the lion and say, I see what is here, and yet proceed on and still go and do the job that he wants to do or needs to do or is called to do, that's just extraordinary. About 1.30, I walked off. Everybody, the lights came on, you thought... Jesus had came down and kissed Christians. They loved it. They just, you know. I was honest. I wasn't disrespectful. I wasn't mean. I wasn't bitter. And from that, Hefner brought me back for two weeks. That was the first time in the history that a Negro comedian had been booked in a white nightclub. Hefner isn't about to let Gregory get away. He offers him a three-year contract at $250 a week. And in one night, the game changes for black comedians. Comedy historian Cliff Nesteroff. This created a trend. He became so popular that other nightclubs wanted him. And suddenly other nightclubs that had never booked black comedians wanted black comics. Every other black comedian in the business was sort of the beneficiary of Dick Gregory's success. Gregory signs with a major talent agency, and an ad in Variety touts him as the hottest star in the country. In 1961, 
he gets a two-album deal and releases Living in Black and White, recorded at the Playboy Club, followed by East and West the same year. The first album hits number 23 on the Billboard charts and earns Gregory a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist. He's the first black comedian ever nominated in the category. So much is happening. Khrushchev acting a damn fool. The neutral nations act like they with him. And you know what a neutral nation is? That's them cats haven't got the H-bomb. <laughs> Russia start testing nuclear weapons in the air. We asked, as a matter of fact, I called Khrushchev myself and asked him not to do that. <laughs> you know, really, you know. Because, see, I can work with him better than Kennedy can, because if he do something against my will, I can get the NAACP on him. <laughs> Even the NAACP isn't safe from Gregory's sharp satire. Nothing free, is no, nothing free. You take the NAACP, it's a wonderful organization. I belong to it myself. I feel they're doing a hell of a job. But do you realize if we had complete integration in the morning, all them cats be out of work. <laughs> I think at the time that he targeted the NAACP, they were seen as practicing a certain kind of politics of appeasement. Writer and musician Greg Tate. He really understood that Martin Luther King's movement was, in its essence, a movement about justice and not just about increasing material opportunity for a black middle class. The National Broadcasting Company and its affiliated stations from coast to coast Present the new tonight, starring Jack Parr. In 1961, Gregory becomes the first black comedian to sit on the couch of Tonight Show host Jack Parr. There had been black comedians that had showed up on mainstream white television shows. Author and professor of black popular culture at Duke University, Mark Anthony Neal. You know, Jack Parr is the precursor to The Tonight Show and Johnny Carson. There are only three or four television stations. You're going to have a huge percentage of the audience that's watching television. And for Black performers, whether comedians or musicians, this is your entry into the crossover market, where white folks who aren't listening to Black segregated radio stations or reading the Chicago Defender or Ebony Magazine or something like that, while Black entertainers had performed on Parr's show, none had been invited to sit on the couch for an interview. Theater producer and publicist Irene Gandy. They kept calling. He said, I'm not coming unless I sit on the couch. So that's the only reason he went. And here he is from the back of the bus to the front and center of our show, Dick Gregory. I can say thank you very much, and when they say this show features living color, you better believe it. You had a black entertainer who wasn't going to shuck and drive, who was not going to be necessarily confrontational, but he didn't change who he was to get on that couch. Gregory not only becomes the first black entertainer to sit on Jack Parr's couch, he goes on to make nine more appearances and sits on that couch every single time. <laughs> Everyone in the country is talking about him. The New York Times and Esquire run glowing profiles on the groundbreaking comedian. He was up next, and he was something very new that no one had ever seen. And no one had ever seen a comedian making that kind of money virtually overnight. He'd been making maybe $50 a week if things were good in 1960. And pretty soon, by the end of 1961, he's making $4,000 and $5,000 a week. Again, Christian Gregory. There was a time where Dick Gregory was the highest grossing entertainer, period. Not black, not white, just period. My dad was a lifelong autophile. He always loved automobiles. I mean, he would import cars from France. He had two Rolls Royces, so he understood that you needed to surround yourself in almost in luxury and treats to undo the damage of what most of the Black experience had been at that point. I mean, he was jet-setting all over the world. It changed his life dramatically. Dramatically. 
And Gregory's life is changing in other more profound ways. With the civil rights movement heating up, he starts speaking out more loudly against racism. Can you hear now? It's better. Well, I I can talk loud, but the NAACP told me not to. (laughs) It destroys this new image of us. Although he rose from rags to riches himself, Gregory takes shots at the upwardly mobile black middle class on his 1962 album, Talks Turkey. See, you see, this is the day of what we call the new Negro. I mean, you read about it and you heard about it. The new Negro is nothing more than the, the Ivy League suit and the short haircuts and the Wall Street Journal under one arm and the New York Times under the other and Jet and Ebony tucked in between them. Dick Gregory was a brother from the, from the streets, you know, who made good, you know. Writer and musician Greg Tate. And didn't have those kind of aspirations to join it and get along and to lead a life that was anything but consistently in pursuit of radical change. In 1962, Gregory is one of the most famous people in America, and he uses his celebrity to bring attention to the civil rights movement. He heads down south and joins the fight for the voting rights with Mega Evers, field secretary for the Mississippi chapter of the NAACP. Gregory's son, Christian. When Megger Evers, Sergeant Megger Evers, called Dick Gregory to come down to Mississippi, that was supposed to be in and out. Dad's thinking, okay, Hollywood, okay, industry, I'll be right back. That's the only time I ever heard my dad say he was scared. He had never marched before. He had never, you know, stood up to racist commie. Never the blatant racism in the entire police department, not a rogue cop, but the entire department, whole divisions being assigned to do this, to do this, the the horrors that we were seeing. I think there was a dissonance for many of these entertainers, particularly if they grew up up north, if you will, or even places like Chicago, where, where racism was real, but it was different. In Chicago, you know, we're going to tell you that you're a nigger. And we're comfortable saying that in a civilized way to your face. You come down south, not only are we going to tell you that, we're going to remind you that you're a nigger by actually treating you like a nigger, right? Despite the fact that you are going to be on national television next week. He's the state field secretary for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Mr. McGavin. The reason I'm up here is because you have given us inspiration in Jackson. And we're going to go back to Jackson, South Mississippi, and all over Mississippi, and fight for freedom as you're fighting for it here in Greenwood. Again, I'd like to say it's my pleasure being here. I can't tell you how much I love you and how much I respect you. Just keep it up. I will be with you tomorrow morning when we go to the courthouse. The visit is a life-changing event. Gregory talks about the impact of an older man's words in his autobiography. The old man shuffled out to the microphone. I think he said he was 78 years old. I'll never forget what he said next. I didn't mind going to jail for freedom, no. I wouldn't even mind being killed for freedom. But my wife and I was married a long time and, well, you know, I ain't never spent the night away from home. While I was in jail, my wife died. That destroyed me. The old man's words helped Gregory realize just how high the stakes are. There's no turning back. There's a bigger purpose than just making laughs. I now have used those laughs to raise my prominence. And now I can be a protector of these people. With his wife's blessing, Gregory fully commits to the movement, no matter the cost. That's one of the things I really respected about my mother and father and the fact they both made it so clear to all 10 of the Gregory children that the civil rights movement comes first. 
The Gregory family second. And show business comes third. For years, Gregory turned down almost every gig that comes his way. He's not just a comic anymore. He's an activist. But activism doesn't pay the bills. The financial ramifications of that decision were not immediate. A lot of the things he had already done for years to come, he was still being paid for. Wealthy friends like Hugh Hefner lend the Gregory's a hand. There were so many folks, black and white, who reached out and said, we support and respect what you have done, and we will be supportive of you and your family. Gregory volunteers to go to Birmingham, Alabama for the Children's March for Equal Rights. He gets arrested and spends five days in jail. Everything goes as planned. He's the first one out of the church with um, the first group of kids and goes right into the back of the paddy wagon. During that point in time, most of the news that caught people's attention around the civil rights movement was the spectacle of it. You know, dogs and hoses and all those kinds of things, obviously marches. And to have a major celebrity like Dick Gregory not only go on the front lines, he brings cameras with him because he's Dick Gregory. And the fact he's on the front lines, his celebrity also becomes part of that spectacle. If you think about it simply from a marketing or a publicity standpoint, that's kind of visibility that you can't buy. As soon as he gets out of jail, he flies back to Chicago to be with his wife and kids. Then a week later, heads right back to Birmingham for a meeting at St. John's Baptist Church. Gregory's team starts to worry that his commitment to the cause could hurt his career. He creates this kind of a new brand of this crusading entertainer. And because the movement was, you know, the number one story, basically, in domestic news in the country at that point, people understood that how this could be all-consuming. Not everybody liked it. I'm certain that he probably could have had an even bigger career. Gregory realizes his celebrity status is a big part of what he brings to the movement. But nothing's going to keep him off the front lines in the battle for equality. His daughter, Ayana. He had no fear. So I think that's the other reason that he did it his way. He had absolutely no fear. Fear. It's like the worst thing you could do is take me out of here and, and instill my spirit and, and legacy will be present. So try me. In June of 1963, Gregory suffers two tragic losses. His two-month-old son, Richard Jr., passes away. And Mecca Evers is murdered in Mississippi at the age of 37. Another martyr in the fight for justice. NAACP official Medgar Evers was shot and killed by a sniper. Evers, a 37-year-old father of three and a veteran, was buried in Arlington National Cemetery. The only reason Dick Gregory was not with Medgar Evers when Medgar Evers was tragically assassinated was because my brother, Richard Jr., had passed away at just about, you know, a couple months old, and my dad coming back to Chicago to be there to comfort the family. I always felt that the last 40 years of Dick Gregory's life, that he felt a tremendous survivor's guilt. Literally, the story of Medgar Evers, him having to be called home in an emergency for a child who ultimately doesn't live. And if not for that circumstance, he's standing there with Medgar Evers when Medgar Evers gets killed. How do you live with that? How do you continue to tell jokes with that? And then you're forging relationships with a Malcolm X, with, with a Martin Luther King, so many of these other figures, right? Who, by 65 and 68, who are also dead. Two months later, Gregory is side by side with Martin Luther King at the March on Washington. He speaks to a crowd of over 200,000 people. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure being here, and nice being out of jail. I'm very confused this year because I never thought I'd see the day I would give out more fingerprints than autographs. And just a few weeks later, 
The 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, is bombed by white supremacists on a Sunday morning. And they died in Birmingham at the 16th Street Baptist Church, rallying point of the Negro Drive in the nation's most segregated big city. Dynamite exploded on a Sunday morning, killed four little girls in Sunday school, injured 20 other Negroes. Gregory writes in his book about how the tragedy lit a fire inside him. But I guess the greatest lesson of that Birmingham bombing was for the Negro who thought that the civil rights didn't pertain to him. The principal, the teacher, the doctor, the preacher, the lawyer. Those were his kids in the church. And whether he wanted to demonstrate or not, whether he thought we were going too fast or not, he found out that as long as your skin is black. It's a year filled with loss. But it's also a year of hope as Dick and Lillian prepare to welcome the birth of twins. Dick continues to tour and releases his fourth album, The Two Sides of Dick Gregory. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I bring you the man who has set comedy on its ear for your entertainment, Dick Gregory. I just left Chicago, and I'm sure you read about the type of weather we've been having like that this winter. Of course, the South been having it pretty cold. It got a little snow down there in Georgia for the first time in a hundred years. No, it's not funny. Can you imagine what it feels like being my color in all white Georgia? <laughs> Hell, I had a cousin, damn near got killed after that first snow. He thought he was leaning up against a snowbank and it turned out to be a Ku Klux Klan rally. <laughs> Of course, they claim in certain parts of the South, this is the coldest it's been in the Deep South in a hundred years. Now, I can't go along with that. Hell, I remember when I was a kid back home, it got so cold one night, the Ku Klux Klan tried to burn a cross on our front porch, and we opened the door and told them, bring it inside. (laughs) And they did. (laughs) One year later, Gregory becomes a published author. With the release of his autobiography, Nigger, the reason for the title can be found on the dedication page, which reads, Dear Mama, wherever you are, if you hear the word nigger again, remember, they are advertising my book. (laughs) The book is an instant bestseller. When 22 million people, be they black or white, start hollering police brutality, then it's time to start listening to 22 million people and going in. Gregory continues to speak out against injustice. He's less concerned with being funny now, but is keenly aware he still has a national audience. Here he is on the Merv Griffin Show in 1965. Police brutality is not when a cop necessarily knocks me upside the head. It's when a cop calls me nigger when he's making the arrest. It's when he handles me wrongly in every process of processing the arrest. This is a form of police brutality. And there's so few people that seem to understand that when the Negro says it's police brutality, then you say, well, he's, he's just looking for a way out. Well, how do these many people look for a way out in so many areas in America? The genius of Dick Gregory was able to pull out some slither of humor in the utter ridiculousness of the Black condition. For Black folks, it helped humanize a situation that historically, for centuries, has seemed untenable unsustainable. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. The riots in Los Angeles have written a sorrowful page in American history. During the Watts riots of 1965, Gregory heads to California to try to calm the crowds and ends up getting shot in the leg. But it doesn't slow him down. The next year, he runs for mayor of Chicago. The campaign gives him yet another megaphone to speak out on injustice. Civil rights leader Martin Luther King leads the procession to the United Nations where he urges U.N. pressure to force the U.S. to stop bombing North Vietnam. Gregory puts his life on the line yet again in protest of the Vietnam War. He fasts for 40 days. His commitment to making the world a better place means leading by example. 
I spent about 98% of my time today on college campuses. The simple reason is that you young folks in America today is probably the most morally honest, ethical, dedicated, committed group of young people that's ever lived in the history of this country, born none. These problems can be solved overnight if you young folks decide to solve these problems using honest, ethical statesmanship ability and not this sick, tired, degenerate political muscle. That's what the problem is today in America. The same slimy, degenerate political forces that's created the problems is not telling us they can't solve the problems. Since his run for mayor gave him a new podium, Gregory sets his sights on the greatest podium there is. In 1968, he announces a run for U.S. president as a write-in candidate. You remember the 68 presidential election? It was wide open. Professor of Black popular culture at Duke University and author Mark Anthony Neal. You know, you had George Wallace. You had Richard Nixon. You had Hubert Humphrey. All these folks in, in a split vote, right? And all of them get, you know, a significant amount of support. Nixon obviously essentially wins. And if you're Dick Gregory, the only way to change the narrative about Black life and progressive American life is to actually engage in this process of running for president. I feel that the two-party system is obsolete. Uh, the two-party system is so corrupt and immoral, they cannot solve the problems confronting the masses of the people in this country. Uh, I did agree to accept the nomination in various states from independent organizations Gregory earns over 47,000 votes, a far cry from the 31.7 million that wins Nixon the presidency. But it's enough to earn him a fifth place finish. But the biggest spotlight comes increased attention. Reports later surfaced that Gregory had been under FBI surveillance the entire year. Daughter Ayanna Gregory. We grew up with tap phone lines and we knew that the FBI didn't like our dad. I mean, I never felt unsafe, uh, but that was the power of the spirituality that was brought into our house. And that was also the power of being funny. Comedian, author, lecturer, actor, human being. Dick Gregory is a man with a message. Gregory continues on his path of activism, speaking at Kent State one year after four students were killed when the Ohio National Guard opened fire on a crowd of anti-war protesters. Youngsters got a big job. I say you have a big job because you have to understand where America started from to understand where America is. Then you'll understand where America's going. One of the great moments is the speech that he gives at Kent State, you know, a year after the killings of those four students. It goes beyond simply this critique of a black and white race relations. The fact that the students were looking for a voice that represented their anger, their pain and their passion in that moment. And he went to Dick Gregory. A lot of people get uptight the way folks treat you in America. Don't like your long hair. Don't like the way you dress. Well, they ain't just picking on you. You know, if Christ came back to America today with that hippie hairstyle and that funny-looking gown he got on, they'd run him all the way out the country. And if he refused to go, they'd tie him to a peace symbol and roll him off a cliff. After almost two decades in comedy, in 1973... Dick Gregory exits the stage. He also quit smoking and drinking. In his book, Callous on My Soul, Dick talks about what inspired him to change his lifestyle. I'd been a participant in all of the major and most of the minor civil rights demonstrations of the early 60s. Under the leadership of Dr. King, I became convinced nonviolence meant opposition to killing in any form. I felt the commandment, thou shalt not kill, applied to human beings, not only in their dealings with each other, war, lynching, assassination, murder, and the like, but in their practice of killing animals for food and sport. 
Animals and humans suffer and die alike. Violence causes the same pain, the same spilling of blood, the same stench of death, the same arrogant, cruel, and brutal taking of life. Gregory and his family moved to a 40-acre farm in Massachusetts. Tower Hill Farm, you know, became this beacon of hope. My dad would bring people in from all over the world to inspire them, teach them about clean living. It was Dick Gregory's first incubator. Over the next two decades, Gregory continues his strong commitment to social justice. It was on the 4th of November last year that several hundred Iranian students seized and occupied the American embassy in Tehran. They'd been part of a demonstration against the former Shah and the American government. In 1980, Gregory travels to Iran to try and free the American hostages. He stays there for four months and publicly goes on a hunger strike. He weighs less than 100 pounds when he gets back to the U.S. Again, comedian D.L. Hughley. Whether it was war or, or civil rights, he has such a fierce love and a fierce belief for his people. Like he was the hottest comic in the game. And he gave all of that up for his belief. The way that he embraced every fight as if it was going to be his last one. Gregory also starts a new business, the famous Bahamian diet, a meal replacement drink. My first introduction to Dick Gregory was the Bahamian diet. It was called the Bahamian diet, but everybody would call it the Dick Gregory. I remember it'd be on TV shows. I remember it was on movies. I remember it was in everybody's cabinet, Dick Gregory. We would see cans of Dick Gregory everywhere. Like my mother would have uh, Dick Gregory while she was waiting for her ribs to get done. The Bahamian diet was, it wasn't a weight loss product, it was a health product, which means that you could be overweight, underweight, on point with your weight, and it would still be relevant in your body. The Bahamian diet is a big success. But Gregory gets sued by two of his business partners. He can't afford the $250,000 due on his mortgage, and the family loses their beloved Massachusetts farm. Dick and Lillian are forced to move into a two-bedroom apartment. My mom, she talks today about it. Oh, man, I mean, she was just devastated. It was shocking. It was devastating. And at the same time, she also believes that it was a blessing in disguise. She had always said, you know, I don't want to be in this big old house forever after all y'all are gone. But she never would have left because it was just everything we knew. It, it was everything we knew. The Massachusetts farm, it's complicated, right? It offered his family a protection from the public, if you will. But it was also a place of retreat for him and a place for of retreat for other Black celebrities, right, who kind of wanted to disappear. Finally, after over 20 years offstage, Gregory returns to stand-up in 1995. He goes on tour with Dick Gregory's one-man comedy show. O.J. Simpson tried to have me so messed up. I was looking at about two months before it was over and thought I did it. (laughs) Called my wife and said, send me them tight gloves. I'm going to turn myself in. (laughs) Here's a man accused of killing two white folks. They let him show up every day in court with a brand new tailor-made suit on and let him write a book while he in jail. I couldn't believe that. I'm giving white folks one more week to accept my book. And if they don't, I'm going to L.A. I know what to do to get a book published. In 2016, at the age of 83, in one of his last big moments on stage, Gregory teams up with Paul Mooney for a one-night-only performance at New York's B.B. King's. I was actually there. Who was first on the scene? Was it you and did Paul? You you know it's Dick Gregory. Oh, okay. He up there trying to act crazy. Oh, come on, man. He got socks older than me. (laughs) (laughs) I remember seeing Dick Gregory at B.B. King's. I was there that night. It was Dick Gregory and Paul Moody performing. Two original icons of comedy. Very insightful. But at the same time, he made you laugh just enough to make you care. Ooh, and that's a hard balance right there. But Dick Gregory's presence on that stage, you know, it it commanded respect. 
it commanded you to laugh at the things that will make you change yourself. The power of the voice, the power of laughter, and the power of the presence of a legend like Dick Gregory. The crowd was in awe, man. We were all in awe. We remember groundbreaking comedian, author, and St. Louis native Dick Gregory. He died August 19th at the age of 84. The man who integrated the comedy scene, who traded the limelight for a spotlight on the front lines in the battle for civil rights, who lived his entire life on his own terms, passes away from heart failure at the age of 84. After his funeral at Washington, D.C.'s Howard Theater, Gregory is feted with a New Orleans-style jazz procession. Dick Gregory's legacy is that he stood the test of time. Dick Gregory is a time traveler. I hope that he recognizes that he influenced two generations of people to look at the world differently, to see things that we normally don't see. Dick Gregory's legacy is multifaceted. One of the great social commentators via comedy that the United States has ever had. But also in a critical historical moment of Black celebrities who were willing to sacrifice their celebrity and their wealth in the name of the civil rights movement that not only would prove to be transformative for Black people, but transformative in this country. My father's legacy is one of freedom, liberation, healing, and love. My father's legacy is beloving and lovable. My father's legacy is that love wins. My father's legacy is that truth and justice will reign supreme. My father's legacy is that everything that is done in the dark comes out in the light. And my father's legacy is that we are the light. America's worth saving because you see, there's nothing really wrong with the United States Constitution that a little enforcement for everybody wouldn't straighten out. Stay strong. Thank you. God bless you. Need you have fun. Peace and freedom.